the Bible contains, we find this epic battle between good and evil. And uh, the battle is worked out in the lives and the hearts and the minds of every man and woman and child. But it's also the story of a God who promises to engage in our lives and to fight our battles for us. Uh, I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about an amazing story, actually in the Old Testament before Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem that most of us are familiar with. Um, But this is a thousand years uh, before that event took place. Probably after Noah's Ark, it's the most famous passage of all, maybe the most famous passage and story in the New Testament. It's the story of David and Goliath. And uh, I uh, was removed from a Sunday school at the age of six for attempting a literal reenactment of that story. Uh, It is a truly wonderful story indeed. So in order to set the context of the story, we've got to go back, as I said, a thousand years BC, 3,000 years from where we are today. And uh, we find a guy called King Saul who is sitting on the Israelite throne. He is the king. Uh, He's chosen by God, but he has messed up his life. He's made bad choices, and he's in a load of problems as a result. He's rejected God. He's chosen to live his life his own way. And there's a chaos going on on the inside of him as a result of his poor, bad choices. And God has taken his blessing off him, which is what happens when we say we don't want anything to do with you, God. People often say, why has God abandoned me? The truth is we abandon him. And that's what's at the heart of this story with this guy called Saul. So God speaks to a guy called Samuel. He is one of the great prophets of the nation of Israel. And he says to him, Samuel, I want you to go to the house of a man called Jesse. Because one of his sons is going to be the new king, the future king. It doesn't happen immediately. But Samuel is asked to anoint that person in Jesse's house as the future king of Israel. Unlike Saul, uh, Samuel does what he is told. He follows the leading of God, he obeys the voice of God, and he arrives at the home of Jesse. Here's what happens next, should appear behind me on the screen. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. I know what that feels like. (laughs) Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took a horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. 
David is around 10 or 11 years of age at this time. And like most lads of that age, they are searching for identity. They need the affirmation of their father and their family. Well, fat chance in the case of David. David is not the first choice of his father for this really important job application. In fact, David doesn't make it into the top seven, okay? He's not actually in the room at the moment. Listen, David is not even in the lineup. He is nowhere to be seen. Samuel arrives at Jesse's house and says, right, bring your lads in here because one of them's the next king. He doesn't even get to enter the room at that moment. If this, you know, to use an X factor sort of analogy, we're kind of big into X factor in our family. To use an X factor analogy, you know, you can forget the Christmas number one, you know, or the confetti sort of flying out of the air when the winner's announced. You know, this guy, he, he doesn't even make it to the judges' houses. He's not actually in the live shows. David gets the good old thanks mate in the car park on the first edition. You know, that's the equivalent. This guy is a second thought to everybody else except for God. And as we'll discover in a moment, David fights a a giant called Goliath. But the first giant that David fights is called rejection. That's his first giant. That's his first obstacle to overcome. Did you know that the Bible is full of rejected, insecure misfits that God loves, chooses, and uses. And uh, if that rings a bell with you today, you are in the right place. Because this, the story of God, the gospel, the invitation to Alpha, is not for the people who have got it all together. It's for the people who feel slightly dismantled on the inside. Does anybody make any sort of connection with that as a concept? A few of us. Jesus said, it's the sick who need the doctor, not the healthy. So these are the kind of people that God seems to choose and call. And I'm so thrilled that that is the case because I am one of them. Jesus constantly lined up with the rejected, the misfits, the pushed around ones in society. And we find exactly the same in the pages of the Old Testament. So let's fast forward a handful of years and now uh, King Saul is desperately holding on to power. Uh, He's lost his peace and he's lost his mind. And with it, he's lost his connection with God. And locked inside this self-inflicted psychological and spiritual prison cell, King Saul, the the monarch over the nation of Israel is searching for something, anything, someone who can bring some kind of peace to his troubled mind. That's when he hears about David. Now David is a musician and uh, he, he plays the harp and when he does it, the presence of God comes into the room. Maybe you experienced that in some way this morning. I certainly did. So 
David is this shepherd boy, as we've already found out. He's on a fast track to greatness because the Spirit of God is on him. He's been chosen and appointed. But he plays the harp as well. In fact, he's really good. And if any of you know anything of the history of the Eurovision Song Contest, uh, David plays the harp better than Mary O'Hara. Okay? She won the Eurovision Song Contest. Now, some of the young people are saying, who's Mary O'Hara? No, she, she's good. She was fantastic. You know, she was a global sensation on the assumption that the world is flat and ends in Dublin. You know, but David was even better than Mary O'Hara. That's how good he was. That's not in the Bible. It's not even in my notes. I made that bit up. So David and Saul, these two guys are now face to face for the first time. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that meeting, wouldn't you? You know, this encounter between these two men who history will describe as the kings of Israel among others. But one is on the way up and one is on the way down. One is peaceful And the other is paranoid. All because of their connection or lack of it with God and his purposes. Now, we need to set the context to what is going on here. Now, the Israelite army are locked in a fierce battle at this moment in time. At the time that the king has got his own battle, he's fighting his own problems he is living in a war zone himself he's living in an internal war zone but he's also in a physical war zone and he's in charge of the army and the bible says that the army are afraid it also says that king Saul himself is afraid and when the leader is afraid there's a problem and into that context david arrives now Why are they afraid in this particular war that they're involved in? Well, it's all pretty well matched, apart from the fact that the Philistines, who are the enemy, they've got this sort of key decisive factor that's operating throughout this war. The Philistines have a champion uh, called Goliath. Um, He is threatening the Israelite army twice a day and this has been going on for six weeks and basically what happens is that there's a valley it's called the valley of Elah still there in Israel and uh, on one side of the valley you've got the Israelite army they're the good guys okay and on the other side you've got the Philistine army they're the bad guys okay and uh, but the Philistine army have got this guy called Goliath and he's a monster of a man and uh, the Bible says every day, in fact twice a day, he comes down into the valley and he starts hurling abuse, shouting his mouth off to the Israelite army. And the Israelite army come down, Goliath appears, and then they run away. And this has happened twice a day for six weeks. This isn't a war, this is a joke. There's no war going on, nobody's fighting. This is just the exchange of threats from this loudmouth which is bringing terror into the whole of the Israelite army, the army of God. So David arrives on the battlefield and he's basically there to deliver the lunchboxes to his brothers who are in the army. There's no other reason for him being there. And this amazing sort of comical exchange then happens between King David, although not yet King David, but the man who is going to become King David about 15 years later, and King Saul, this troubled, afflicted, psychologically and spiritually damaged individual who is basically in charge of this fast that's happening every day, twice a day. 
David looks at this guy, Goliath, walking into the valley, and he's going, who's the big guy? And they say, look, you know, that's not the big guy. That's Goliath, and he's been around for a while. He's a heavyweight. Um, He's pretty threatening. We're all a little bit fearful of him. And David says, take me to the king. And, and they're going, well, David, you know, David's 15 about at this time. He's going, David, you know, you know, you're a worship leader. You know, you're not quite up to this sort of warfare stuff. It's just a joke. And uh, he's saying, look, you know, really we just need to sort of dial this down a bit because you're going to cause problems for yourself and you're going to cause problems for the rest of us. But David's insistent. And he goes to the king and he says, you know, let me go down and fight him. And, and, and King Saul's going, yeah, can we sort of have a chat about this? And he said, look, he said, he's defying the armies of Israel. He said, let me deal with him. I can deal with him for you. And this is Saul's response. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. It's funny. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and seized the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. I mean, this guy makes bear grills look like Mr. Bean, you know. (laughs) Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, what's he got planned, will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you or put another way okay son if you can deal with this then go for your life but if your mother hears anything about this I'm denying the lot that's basically what's going on Saul Saul knows he's got a massive problem and he totally washes his hands of the responsibility of this young lad's life and he goes into battle we face giants every day of our lives And if we ever needed God in our lives and in our nation, we need him today. So here's what the weigh-in looked like with these two great warriors who are about to face each other. Goliath, um, he's six foot nine and 22 stone of solid muscle. Some texts have him at over nine feet in height. Okay, so he's like serious character. Goliath's chainmail, his his kind of like overcoat, um, weighs 60 kilograms, which is about the weight of David in his boxer shorts. Okay, so that's the sort of match-up in terms of weight. And Goliath's spear is heavier than a tree, and it has a 10-kilogram tip. And David is armed with a slingshot. That's it. That's what this match-up looked like. Goliath went in with a fierce reputation, with many previous kills. David went in knowing that God would fight for him. And on his way down into the valley, the Bible says that David stopped at the river and collected five stones for his slingshot. 
People have often wondered why David took five stones when clearly he was only going to need one. Uh, Maybe the answer lies a little bit further in the story when we discover that Goliath had four brothers. Maybe he thinks, you know, we might have to take on the old lot of this family, you know, in one go at some point. So he, he loads himself up ready for it. Goliath sees David heading down the valley and he almost dies laughing. And he thinks to himself, you know, I've dispatched a few Israelite lightweights over the last six weeks, but, you know, a kid with a catapult, you know, that's kind of pretty much going to be milk and drink. You know, the Bible says that Goliath shouted at him and said, before the sun goes down, the birds will be eating your flesh. I mean, that's what was going on as this battle started to take place. David picks up a stone, puts it in his slingshot, and he takes a big swing, and the stone flies through the air and it cuts back against a sharp headwind with reverse side spin and it hits him smack between the eyes only then does he realize that he's pulled the wrong elastic it wasn't his catapult he's pulled the elastic on his boxer shorts and they're now at his ankles that's not in the bible either but what is in the bible is this that goliath fell dead on the ground david removed his head for good measure And the battle was over. And so was the war. Why? Because one guy who was 15 stood against a giant that was threatening an army and a nation. And he trusted God. And he said, my God will fight for me. It's an amazing story. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Westminster for the the, uh, National Day of Prayer. Very powerful event. Uh, thousands of people prayed on that day and there was a thousand in the venue when I was there and uh, it was actually a prayer day that was organized on the 77th anniversary of one of the prayer days that was called in the second world war by George VI who was a Christian and uh, it happened uh, in September of 1940 uh, which was just as the Battle of Britain was coming to an end and the world uh, was in a the world was in a terrible state obviously very very delicately balanced and the nation here was under threat and uh, like many of you I've seen the film Dunkirk uh, it's a great movie um, but it conveniently airbrushes out much of the real story and uh, here's what happened So in May 1940, the entire British army was facing total annihilation in France. The French forces had been overwhelmed by a German mechanised advance and uh, Hitler predicted the complete annihilation of the British army and the imminent invasion of England. Uh, On the 26th of May, King George VI called the nation to prayer. And the whole of the nation was mobilized. Churches that were normally empty were suddenly full. Um, I've got some amazing original pictures of uh, churches in central London with queues snaking all the way through that part of the city. And uh, 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 because people had been called to prayer, um, there was a tremendous faith in the nation that God was going to act for us. And uh, over the course of that week... Uh, there was a terrible storm, and, uh, and then when the nation prayed, uh, what's described as a mill pond sea uh, was in the channel, and uh, an, an amazing event took place, and thousands of soldiers, in fact 335,000 men were lifted off the beaches of Dunkirk by sailing boats, fishing boats, pleasure cruisers, which would not have been possible the day before because of the storms that were on the channel. 
Winston Churchill had said in Parliament that he hoped for 30,000 soldiers to be rescued. In the end, we had over 10 times that amount coming back into the UK. And the following day, he described it as a miracle of deliverance. But the British Army came back, stripped of any weapons or tanks, and for a few days, uh, the nation stood on a moment of imminent invasion as the German army amassed at the French coast. And uh, the, the area around uh, uh, Sussex and the Kent coast would have been the D-Day landing zone for the Germans in 1940. Seven times in the Second World War, the king called days of prayer, and with a massive response from the people... Uh, The course of the war changed every single time, sometimes within hours. A a vulnerable nation facing a terrifying advancing giant, and God stepped into the breach. Why? Because he loves people. There's an amazing story of um, the moment where the, the Israelite nation again was rescued, um, it was actually before this event took place. It's when the uh, Red Sea was parted and they got out with their lives out of Egypt. And uh, Moses, who was the boss at that time, who was a greater man than Saul for sure, uh, this is what he said. It's a wonderful passage. And it's in Exodus 14. And it says this, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring today. The Egyptians you see today, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. When we are our weakest, facing giants of depression, hopelessness, fear, and we call out to God, he will answer us. What we just heard with these guys is an amazing story of God stepping into a family and rescuing them from what they were up against. And there are many stories like that in the room today that could be recounted. When David became king, no one ever forgot what happened that day in the valley when God stepped in and delivered him and fought a battle for him. And uh, years later... 15, 16, 17 years later, David is fighting another giant. But this time it's a giant of moral failure of his own making. And uh, as, as we've picked up through this very brief account of David's life story, there are many more chapters in the story of this incredible man. But there are many giants that he faced, not just Goliath. And uh, there's a great passage in the Bible where God described this man David as a man after his own heart. But the truth is, in reality, that his life was a, a mix of great successes and devastating failures. That's the story of his life. David wrote most of the Psalms, uh, worship songs, what we've sung today, um, the worship songs that are in the Bible, in the book of Psalms. And there's a, there's a wonderful uh, uh, sentence in one of those Psalms. It's the, 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 from the pen of David himself. And he says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life. And so this whole thing of giant killing, I guess, became a soundtrack to his life. I guess he never forget what God did for him in the Valley of Elah and how God gave him an identity in the face of rejection from his family. It's a very familiar story. 
but it didn't seem to save him from his humanity. You see, that's, that's the battle that we live in. That is the epic struggle of the human race. Sometimes we win and sometimes we seem to fail and we lose. But God's love is consistent every day. Most people here that are Christians would say that they have let God down, but he has never let them down. So how does this become real for us? Well, we've got to fast forward again a thousand years to the time when Jesus came as God's answer, God's brilliant idea of how to reconcile us to him. Far better than a rule book, far better than a religious system that people have to follow and adhere to. Because all of that, in the end, brings guilt. And it brought guilt when that system was operating in the Old Testament, the time before Jesus. But there was a moment in human history, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles from where we're sitting today, where God stepped into our time-space world. The God who was everywhere became somewhere in Jesus. And as he walked the earth, and as he interacted with broken people like you and I, he presented a roadmap of how to live in perfect friendship and relationship with God. But you see, that wasn't enough, you see, because we don't just need a role model. We don't just need a pattern. We have a problem, and the problem is is that the things that we do, the things that we have done in thought, word, and deed that are wrong have separated us from a God who is totally perfect. There is no spot or blemish on God at all. And the problem is we are not like that, so we've got a bit of a problem. We're in a bit of a state because we want to know God, but we can't reach him and that is why Jesus is so important in this amazing story you see Jesus wasn't just a man he wasn't just a good man he wasn't just a great man he wasn't just the best man he was the son of God he was totally human so he could relate to our pain he could connect with our damage but he was fully God his wow so he could breach the gap. He could span the divide between where we are and where we need to be in friendship and relationship with God. So a Christian is not just someone who knows the stories of the Bible. It's not even someone who chooses to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Not even that. It's the person who says, I don't want to have control of my life anymore. I want to turn it over and I want God's plan, God's roadmap for my life. And that is possible when we say sorry to God, when we recognize that we are separated from him, but in Jesus we have the chance to be reconciled. Why? Because Jesus died as an innocent man. He didn't do the stuff that we do and have done. He was totally perfect. And he laid his life down as a sacrifice in order that we could have our debt canceled out. It is a wonderful, beautiful thing to be forgiven. To be set free, to be reconnected back to the source that we were never meant to be separated from. God is a father who loves you. He's not a tyrant who causes all the chaos that's going on in the world. He watches that with pain in his heart. The Bible says that when God saw what had happened on the, on the earth, his heart was filled with pain. That's the type of God God is. He feels it. He feels your pain. He identifies with the brokenness of our lives. 
But in Jesus, we get a fresh start because all of that was piled upon Jesus when he died on a cross. And so being a Christian is simply saying, I want that fresh start. But it's not easy. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. It's not easy. Why is it not easy? It's not easy because we've got to say no to our pride. We've got to say no to the things that hold us back and want us to retain control. We've got to turn it over to God and say, God, I've sport my life. I need a fresh start. I need you to wipe my slate clean. And I put my trust in everything that Jesus lived for and died for and rose for and then ascended back to heaven to sit, sit at the right hand of the Father, pleading my case day and night in the courts of God. That is the truth. And when we align ourselves with that reality, everything changes. Everything changes. Because the eternal seed that we were never meant to be robbed of returns into our lives and the clock is wound back and we get to live our lives all over again. Wow. It is the most beautiful thing. It is the costliest thing that this world can offer. And it's free. But it will cost you everything. Why? Because every day we've got to die to ourselves. Every, every day we've got to say, not my will, but your will. And that is not easy. And anyone who tells you it's easy is not telling you the truth. It is not easy. There are days that I wish I didn't have the responsibilities that I've got, but I do. And it's the same for every person who chooses to become a follower of Jesus. So, as we come to the end, there's two things that we can do in response. Actually, there's three. The third one is you can walk away and you can say, no thanks. Well, that's your choice. You might say to yourself, well, if there's a price to pay, I'll take my chances. That's your choice. That's the first choice. (laughs) I don't recommend it. The second choice is, actually, I need to think about this for a while. I need to go on a bit of a process of exploration. The word explore is on the card. This is for you. We want to invite you to join this journey of exploration with us. It's called Alpha. It's fantastic. Millions of people have been on it, and Bear Grylls recommends it. And you can sign up for this. But the third option is actually you might be saying, yeah, I don't know all the questions, and I would like to go on this, but actually I want to take a step right now. That's a really good idea. And I want to be clean. I want to be set free. I want to be reconnected. I want to be plugged into the source of God's power. I want that, that, that power every day in my life to slay the giants that I face. How do you get there? Well, it's so simple a child of three can understand it. We simply have to say, God take the reins of my life. I accept that when Jesus died, he didn't just die for mankind because he had to, he died for me. It's personal. It's really personal. And you can take that step. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray and uh, I'm going to invite you to join that prayer with me. And at the end of it, I'm going to ask you to do something really brave. I'm going to ask you to stand up to your feet. It's not that brave. You know, you're not going to get sort of prosecuted for doing it. Okay. You might in some countries. But that's not going to ask you to do. Because when you stand up, you say yes to a father and you say yes to a family. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to do that if you pray with me. Let's all close our eyes for a minute.
So if you want to know God as your father today, if you want to take that first simple childlike step of faith in God and transformation through Jesus, then you pray this prayer with me on the inside. Not out loud, just on the inside. And then I'm going to ask you to stand. Here's the prayer. My Father in heaven, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you have a plan for me. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his death. Thank you that he rose from the dead, destroying death and its power over my life. I choose to put my trust in him. In all that he made possible, when he died on a cross, joining time and eternity together so that I could become a child of my Father in heaven. Live in me today. Give me a fresh start as a follower of Jesus. If you prayed that prayer with me, I just want you to jump to your feet just for a moment. Do that right now. Saying, yeah, I did that. Maybe you did it for the very first time. Maybe you've done it as a child, but you just it's never quite worked out in the way you hoped. And you're coming back, back into the Father's house. Then you stand as well. Okay, Father, I want to thank you for this incredible message that we call the gospel of Christ. That there is enough power in this message to transform the life of anyone, anywhere who chooses to say no to themselves and yes to you. And I pray, Lord, for men and women in this building today who feel far from you. I pray for them, Lord. I pray that they would not leave as they arrived. That you would give them no peace outside of the peace that is possible through Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing story of a giant killing God who fights the battles of the people who humble themselves. And I pray, Lord, that we would be changed by it. Each one of us, those of us who have spent half a lifetime in relationship with you, that we would be just changed and disturbed by this message that comes out of the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.